Uh, we're in this series on five things I wish Jesus never said. And uh, I, I suppose there's a sense in which the statements we've looked at so far, uh, you know, we, we, we could respond, okay, I guess those are reasonable. Uh, I, I can go along with that. We talked about love your enemies, that is to act toward those, even those who oppose you in a loving way, the way that Christ would. Um, we talked about it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And um, again, we saw that God wants us to think wisely about the resources that he's placed into our hands and, and to understand the issue of stewardship. And, and of course, that one ends with the disciples saying, well, then who can get into the kingdom of God? I mean, if a rich man can't, remember in that culture, in that day, they saw riches as being a sign of God's blessing his stamp of approval. So if the rich man can't come in, then for goodness sakes, what chance do we have? And Jesus simply says, well, with, with man, everything is impossible, but nothing is impossible with God. And then last week we talked about, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Um, we are to love God with our heart, with our mind, with our soul. And, and out of that then comes obedience. And so we obey God with our affections, with our thinking, with our willing. Today, honestly, may be a different story, because this one is very personal. In, in fact, it's, it's really kind of tough, because it goes to the core of God's calling in our lives as believers in Christ. It, it's a calling to discipleship, to being a disciple of Jesus. And our lives are to be a reflection of his Former Secretary of State General Colin Powell, who was the highest ranking African-American in the armed forces when he served as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, gave a speech in Philadelphia in 1995. And in that speech, he noted that the London Times had said that he was related to Queen Elizabeth. Powell said, I look in the mirror every morning and I can't see it yet. But, but isn't that our experience when we look into the scriptures and see how it describes a disciple of Christ, what we ought to be like and what we ought to do? And, you know, we just, all we can think of is, I can't see it yet. As Jesus neared the end of his earthly ministry, he shifted his focus almost exclusively to teach his disciples. And he began to talk to them about the requirements, the expectations of discipleship. All three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this teaching of Jesus. So we're going to go to the Gospel of Matthew this morning, the first book in the New Testament. If you want to grab your Bibles or grab a Bible in front of you, page 1044, Matthew chapter 16. Now let me spill the beans right away. Here's the big picture idea. We're going to keep coming back to this over and over in this message. No to me, but yes to God. No to me, but yes to God. Look at the beginning of verse 13 in chapter 16 of Matthew's Gospel. Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Now Jesus' teaching on discipleship takes place in a context that is important for us to note. He takes his disciples to the region of Caesarea Philippi, which was a Greco-Roman city located near the ancient city of Dan, way in the northern part of Israel. I have a map up. It's kind of small, but if you can see almost right above the small Sea of Galilee, uh, up to the right, there's Caesarea Philippi. 
Uh, it's here that Herod the Great built the Temple of Augustus in 19 BC to honor Caesar. It's also very near Mount Hermon, the, the, the tallest mountain in Israel at 9,000 feet. Uh, probably the mountain upon which Jesus was transfigured. We read about it in Matthew chapter 17. But an interesting thing for us to ponder is, why is this the place where Jesus takes his disciples? This is a place known for its paganism, its Hellenism, its, its idol worship. This is not a good place for him to be. I wonder if it isn't tied to his focus on the disciples. He is preparing them for the ministry that they will embark upon when he's gone. And it's a ministry that engages the entire world, and the world at that time, much of the world was simply involved in paganism. So maybe this is kind of a reminder, an introduction of what they are going to be walking into in ministry. I think it's all preparation of the training of the twelve. So Jesus begins with a question, verse 13. He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The disciples respond. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus flips the question around. And he says, but who do you say that I am? It's a question that begs for clarification, for identification. And, and Peter speaks up probably speaking for all the disciples, as he often did. But he says, you are the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God. This is the one who had called them to follow him. This was the one who was calling them to be a disciple of his. Then he goes on, verse 21. From that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Wow. Peter thought he knew what was best for Jesus. Glory without the cross. Nothing too radical, nothing too costly. And Jesus rebukes Peter. Just before he had blessed him for his insight and it just flips on its head. And now he's rebuked for seeing only with human eyes, with, with human perspective, human judgment. Peter, and most likely all the disciples, just didn't get it. The cross would be the glory of the gospel, not the end of the gospel. You see, the cross, in their understanding, their experience in Palestine, meant shame. It, 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 was, it was defeat. It was terrible. There was no victory in the view of the cross in their eyes. And Jesus now takes the disciples... Uh, further down the road of their spiritual journey. And he tells them in plain language what is required of them if they're to be his disciple. Mark's gospel tells us that there's a larger group of people that are around Jesus. It's a larger crowd, and he's invited them all to come in and, and to listen at this point to the things he's going to say. Three things Jesus says are required if you would be his disciple as the text goes on. The first of all, he says you must deny yourself. Now, what does he mean? 
Um, it, it probably would help us if we would begin from the negative. What does it not mean to deny yourself? It, it doesn't mean self-denigration. It doesn't mean tearing down yourself. It's not self-destruction. Because you see, all those things deny the principle of grace. Jesus isn't saying we're to hate ourselves. He's saying we should deny ourselves. It also doesn't mean self-denial in the sense of denying yourself something. It's not like giving up something for Lent. It's not calling for the life of a mystic or those who, who, who in an attempt to be more spiritual, deprive themselves of food and clothing and, and any other creaturey comforts. The word deny simply means to disavow a person or a thing. William Hendrickson says to deny oneself means to renounce the old self, the self as it is apart from regenerating grace. So maybe if you would just think of this, it, it, denying yourself means to move outside the whirlpool suction of egocentricity, that is of everything revolving around me. It's all about me. It's all about myself. Um, it means, as one person wrote, to cease to make the self the sole object of one's life and actions. So it's coming to terms with the reality that God and not me is the center of life. It means that we affirm that God is the rightful owner of all that we are and all that we have. See, the reality is that God does not demand that we give up things, but that we give up ourselves. Does that make sense? It's a different way of looking at it. I think Paul says it so clearly in 1 Corinthians 6 when he writes, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This is often what comes back to me, you know, when I'm driving along and some jerk, I mean some person, um, you know, cuts in front of me or something, and, and I want to get typically angry. And I have to remind myself, no, I don't have a right to do this. I don't, I don't belong to myself. I belong to the one that purchased me. It means no to me, yes to God. So if you would be a disciple of Christ, you must yield your rights to him. It's a matter of his lordship in your life. Do you allow him to sit on the throne of your life if you picture a center you know, chair in the middle of your heart? Is he the center of your thinking, the center of your life? Boy, what a contrast to the way we think today. We are such a narcissistic society where everything is focused on my rights and my privileges and my happiness and my fulfillment. And Jesus comes along and says, no, I want to be your focus. If you would be my disciple, then you've got to put me in the center of your life. We talked a little bit about this, I think, during our dialogue time last week. It isn't that God is at the top of my priority list. It is in the midst of all that I am and do, it finds its meaning and purpose within the circumference of God himself. Second, Jesus says, take up your cross. Cross-bearing, it's a pretty powerful image because it's a depiction of rejection. Jesus told his disciples that he would be rejected by the scribes and the elders and the chief priests and he would be killed. Now in that day, criminals carried their own cross to their execution. And I think the Apostle Paul picks up this imagery of, uh, of crucifixion with his identification with Christ. 
And so he writes to the Galatians, for far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Bearing one's cross, then, is a symbol of being prepared to face rejection and even death. It's a symbol of having died to this world, to the world's values, to the world's lifestyle. And then we have to ask, well, what is this cross to bear? Have you ever heard somebody say to you, you know, about something in their life, well, that's just my cross to bear. Uh, well, I, I, don't, I don't think Jesus had in mind simply hardships and difficulties. It, it's, not some, it's not a meddling mother-in-law. It's not an overbearing boss. Uh, it's not an illness. It's not a handicap. This is a cross that comes from walking in the way of Christ. It's choosing his mastership over my life, of embracing his life. And it comes when we bear without shame the reproach of others because of our identity as Jesus' disciple. It's a willingness to walk in his footsteps wherever they may lead. So taking up one's cross is simply to identify with the way of the cross. This is what Jesus is asking of his disciples. This is what he's asking of us, if we would be his disciple. So if we would come after him, we have to step off the throne of our lives. We have to allow him to sit on the throne, that it's no longer just all about me, but it really is about him. And maybe being willing to suffer whatever rejection we might experience. Though, you know, to be honest, that's much less likely for us in America than it is for many others in other places of the world. Well, having denied ourselves, taken up our cross, then thirdly, we are to follow him. It speaks of one thing, obedience. I mean, can we really follow Jesus if we are not obedient to what he asks of us? Because you see, discipleship is the junction of our faith and our obedience. It's the intersection of our love for Christ and our obedience to him. That's what we talked about last week. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, I know this is an area we all fail in, isn't it? To be obedient to what God wants us to do and how to live. It's a struggle because we're human. It's a struggle because sin has invaded every one of us. And after we come to faith in Christ, that old self is still there. That old vestige of being in Adam is still there. And so my natural inclination is still toward what I want and what pleases me and what satisfies me. But it's just now we have a choice. Now we can say no to me and yes to God. But God calls us to walk in humility. He calls us to walk in love, in integrity, in purity, in faithfulness, in service to him and to others. And when we obey him, then we're showing him that we are following but that means we make a choice. We, we make a very deliberate choice to follow him. R.T. France once said, discipleship is not the result of an easy compliance, but of a deliberate and permanent decision. It is to say no to me and yes to God. Now, all three of those verbs, deny, take up, and follow, are imperatives. They're commands. If you want to be a disciple of Christ, they're not optional. It's what comes with the package. 
It's what God expects of us as his children. The first two in the Greek language of the New Testament are in the aorist verb tense, and then follow is in the present tense. What's the significance of that? Well, Daryl Bach writes, this means that discipleship involves the fundamental commitment of self-denial and bearing one's cross, while the call to follow Jesus is constant, growing out of the base commitments. Discipleship, therefore, requires a basic shift of orientation as we align ourselves with God's will through a humble renunciation of our own agenda. Maybe the best summary of Matthew 16, 24 is this, where Paul writes to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, Jesus follows on to this discussion with two statements that lay out the rationale for such radical thinking and choosing and living. Look at verse 25. He writes, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Dr. A.B. Bruce, in his classic book on discipleship titled The Training of the Twelve, writes about the implications of that verse. Listen to what he writes. According to this maxim, we must lose something. It is not possible to live without sacrifice of some kind. The only question being, what shall be sacrificed? The lower or the higher life? Animal happiness or or spiritual blessedness? If we choose the higher, we must be prepared to deny ourselves and take up our cross, although the actual amount of the loss we're called on to bear may be small. If, on the other hand, we choose the lower and resolve to have it at all hazards, we must inevitably lose the higher. The soul's life and all the imperishable goods of the soul, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, are the price we pay for worldly enjoyment. This whole thing on discipleship. I guess, in other words, you can't have your cake and eat it too. At some, time, at some point, you've got to make a choice. You've got to make a decision whether the core of your life is committed to the things of God or to the things of this world. That's the choice that we have. Again, it's not a calling to a monastic existence. It's not calling to a denial of the material blessings that God has given to you, but it's an intentional orientation of your values, your priorities, your focus. Here's the second statement, verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? That's an amazing perspective for anyone. Some of you, if you can dredge deeply back into your historical exposure in your minds there to a guy by the name of Charlemagne. Charlemagne, Charles the Great, he was king of the Franks from 768 AD and emperor of the Romans from 800 until his death in 814. He expanded the Frankish Empire into a a kingdom that incorporated much of Western and Central Europe. He's regarded not only as the founding father of both French and German monarchies, but also as the father of Europe. His empire united most of Western Europe for the first time since the Romans. 180 years after the death of Charlemagne, in other words, about the year 1000, 
officials of Emperor Otho opened the great king's tomb. They found incredible treasures buried with the emperor. And the skeletal remains of Charlemagne were seated on a throne, his crown still upon his skull, and a copy of the Gospels on his lap. His bony finger rested on this text, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Think about it. Wasn't this the basis of the temptation of Jesus? The devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And then he said to him, all of these I will give you if you will just fall down and worship me. Here was the choice set before Jesus. Walk in God's path or that of Satan. But Jesus knew that the choice was fundamentally false. Satan could not give him what God alone could. And we need to see the falsehood of this temptation today. Because the world says to us, here it is. It's all for you. You can have it if you will just worship these things. But the world in reality cannot give you what God alone can. Things like love, peace, security, fulfillment, purpose, real life. So why should we spend all our time and our focus and in our energy seeking what only God can give? But it's so subtle, isn't it? The pull of the world and the things around us. God's given us to enjoy but be careful because they might own you. The temptation is so great, it looks so good from a distance. And yet, we have to understand what the world offers is such a hollow substitute for the real thing. Let's go back. Let's look at the three requirements of discipleship that Jesus lays out. Here's the big picture idea. No to me, yes to God. Deny yourself, take up your cross, Follow me. Let's do something else. Let's put a word with each of these commands. Deny yourself. I think that is sacrifice. To be a disciple of Christ involves sacrifice. You choose to lay yourself on the altar of God, and you say, God, here's my life. Use me as you wish. Here's everything you've blessed me with. It's on the altar. Help me to use it wisely. It's all yours to use as you wish. So sacrifice means it's, it's, it's my focus. It means my time, it means my money, it means my life, if I really understand discipleship. And then take up your cross. Um, the word I would put there is identity. We choose to identify with Christ, with his death, with his life. A.W. Tozier writes in his book, Man, the Dwelling Place of God, the faith of Christ does not parallel the world, it intersects it. In coming to Christ, we do not bring our old life up onto a higher plane. We leave it at the cross. The corn of wheat must fall into the ground and die. God offers life, but not an improved old life. The life he offers is life out of death. It always stands on the far side of the cross. Sacrifice, identify. Here's a third one. Follow me, obey. Following after Jesus means I'm obedient to his will, to his wishes. It's, it's in the present tense. It's continuous action. It's a commitment to continue to follow, to continue to obey. 
So it's a decision we have to make every morning. When we wake up, whether you make it consciously or not, you've made it, who is going to be the center of my life and activities today? Who am I living for today? Is it for Jesus or is it for myself? Or is it for others? I mean, you're going you're to make that decision consciously or unconsciously every morning. Discipleship is a process. It's really not the journey. I mean, it's, it is the journey. It's not just the destination. This is a journey that has ups and downs. It has successes and failures. It has its advances and retreats. But through it all, the faithfulness of God undergirds our efforts. I, I hope you can grab a hold of that. As much as, we, as much as we set ourselves to do that, what underpins everything, the foundation under all of that, is God's faithfulness. It's his perseverance, not ours, that'll take us to the end. That's the wonderful promise of Scripture. But we need to remember we're in it for the long haul, or the old cliche, you know, the Christian life is not the 100-yard dash. It's marathon. As long as God allows us to live until he takes us home, that's the focus. I think that's the idea behind Eugene Peterson's excellent book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Discipleship in an Instant Society. He writes, there's a great market for religious experience in our world. There's little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him. No to me, yes to God. That's discipleship. That's what we're called to, if we know it. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that the words of Jesus spoken to his disciples are true for us today, of what is needful if we are to be your disciples. And I know we in this room are all different places along the spectrum of our Christian lives. Uh, for some, maybe they haven't even started it. I pray that today would be a day that they would recognize the futility of putting their trust in anything other than Christ to deal with their sins. But for most of us, we've come to that point at some place in our life. At some time, we've trusted in you. Uh, I pray that we would understand the kind of life that you call us to, the, a life of, of uh, walking with you, and that we might understand the requirements if we're going to be faithful in doing that. But I thank you most of all that your faithfulness undergirds the efforts on our part, sometimes very puny efforts to walk with you. But you have put your Holy Spirit in us to empower us and to encourage us, to inspire us, and you've given us your word to direct us, and I pray that we would set our minds to those things that are most important, those things that are eternal, that in the midst of our everyday lives this week, we would be mindful of the choice before us to either live it for you or for ourselves, and might we make the right choice. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.